You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. For whatever reasons, Ray, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose? To go into business for ourselves. This ecto-containment system that Spengler and I have in mind is going to require a load of bread to capitalize. Where are we going to get the money? I don't know. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste Ghostbusters Retrospective Series. I'm just so glad you came back. <laughs> Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning soft voice Logan as they prove that no series is too big and no drink is too big for these aftertaste hosts. That's great! Actual physical contact! Why is Logan as grumpy on this series? as Bill Murray is on these sets. Give me angry. Will you, will you give me angry if you've had a bad day? You're cranky. What is the complicated tale behind the bringing of this cursed podcast series to life? You know, my dad says you guys are full of crap. And what are we expecting in the new Jason Reitman entry, Ghostbusters Afterlife? Does anybody speak English here? Uh, the answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Sorry, Beckman. I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. Ghostbusters 2, released June 16th, 1989. Budget on this was $40 million. Box office, $215.4 million. And this was directed by Ivan Reitman. Ghostbusters, 1984, comes out. Massive success. A damn phenomenon. I was sucked up in it. Logan was sucked up in it. Matt, well, Matt wasn't even born yet. But I'm watching cartoons. I'm buying Ghostbusters toys. I am in when Ghostbusters 1 comes out. Isn't it amazing when you're a kid how long five years is? Because by the time 1989 rolled around, I did not give a shit about Ghostbusters. I did not even see this in the movies. I think I waited for video. Logan, were you excited for Ghostbusters 2? Did you see Ghostbusters 2 in theaters? What was your excitement level when this movie was coming out? So when Ghostbusters 2 came out, I was six years old, and uh, not much has changed. <laughs> you know, I was excited because, like, the cartoon was big in my eyes. I watched the first on VHS a lot. You know, I think I even bought the soundtrack pre-movie, so I was listening to that a lot. So for a six-year-old kid who was all up in the Ghostbusters media and and loved it and stuff like that. I was I was pretty excited to kind of see, like, my first big... Because obviously I was a year old when the first movie came out, so I, I didn't really get to see that one in theaters. But for a Ghostbusters movie in theaters, that was a pretty, pretty big deal for me. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was generally as excited as a six-year-old could get. Mr. Goudreau, you, sir, had 
watched Ghostbusters the first time we did this recording last year, Ghostbusters 2, I should say. Before we recorded that show, what was your expectation going in? Had you heard the bad buzz on this? Were you looking forward to it just to see if you were going to like it? What, what, were you, what was your expectation going into your first viewing of Ghostbusters 2? The reception that most people had in general was the precise reason why I did not see this movie until we were doing this series. When I hear the consensus of it's the same movie, why am I going to waste my time when there's so much other more valuable things I could be doing with my life? Not watching a rehash of a movie that I like, but Ghostbusters is not in my top 100 or anything like that. So there were quite a few reasons why I kind of stayed away, but that was the primary one. But much like Garrett, you were the question guy on the Fast and Furious show, so I'm going to be the question guy on Ghostbusters 2 as best as I can. I have never seen the cartoon. So my question is, is that canonical with the movies? Is that its own thing? Like, what exactly is it? All right, that's actually a loaded question because we have a few iterations of Ghostbusters here to talk about when we talk about cartoons. Isn't that right, Logan? Yeah. So the reason why the original Ghostbusters was called Ghost Smashers was because Ghostbusters was already taken by a little animation company called Filmation. Now, Filmation, for people out there who are me and Logan's age, they did the He-Man cartoons way back when. And they had owned the rights to the name Ghostbusters. And as I mentioned last week, you know, Ivan Reitman had a scene and he said, okay, I need I need that name. So they bought the name. But in the midst of that, there was a cartoon in the time between Ghostbusters 1 and this movie, there was a cartoon that is so different than the film iteration of Ghostbusters. We had a gorilla. It, it was one of the most bizarre cartoons, but I loved it as a kid. Like, I had sticker books with it. Logan, do you remember this cartoon at all? All I remember is a very, because as soon as you mentioned it, like, I, I remember a vague, like, image with the logo and, like, the characters you're talking about, but, like, I had never seen anything beyond that. Honestly, if I was thinking, I would have probably watched a few episodes for this series to kind of revisit it. I didn't do that. I'll just leave my memories the way they were, but I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. So, to get to your original question, the cartoon was called The Real right, Ghostbusters, yeah. the one that you're talking about. And this was actually, Dan Aykroyd and Held Ramis actually had a lot to do with this development. They were behind it. They did a few of the storylines. Some of them are very canonical with the movies. In fact, there's even one where they bring out the Safe Puff Marshmallow Man every once in a while. The Halloween episodes of that show, I remember being phenomenal. The Halloween Door episode is one that I revisit every Halloween with that like big pinkish purplish yes. monster that one yeah like when i first met him like as a kid that one scared the shit out of me it's amazing but yeah they do a slimer is in it this is before it became slimer in the real ghostbusters which i'll get to that here in a little bit but they would tie him into the movies they would tell backstories on the ghosts they would mention every once in a while well remember when we saved new york those years ago now the other thing was they did not have the likeness so that's why you had egon with big blonde hair Ray looked extremely different. In fact, uh, Dan Aykroyd was very unhappy with the way they did Ray in that series because he was way overweight in the in this in this cartoons. Yes, to answer your question, it was canonical, and it was one of the first times I would watch a cartoon just to see how it would continue the films because they did continue the films. And I assume none of the actors do the voiceover work. No, no. And Arsenio it, Hall did Winston. So it was funny because. I don't know the voice actor's name, but the voice actor for Peter was the voice actor for Garfield, and Bill Murray was yes. Garfield in the movies, which is, I just think it's funny. That is a very funny tie-in. Yeah. yeah. But the cartoon in and of itself was all the Ghostbusters looked, you know, obviously Egon looked different from Harold Ramis. I mean, he had blonde hair, which, you know, they kind of do like a little nod to that in the 
the female Ghostbusters, but the intro song is like the same song. Everything's like, you know, they, they, they pulled a lot from the movies, but it's more, I feel it's also more kid-friendly. But there's some scary, I mean, I do remember some very scary stuff, and those those action figures, you know, that were available back in the day, yes. those, those were all cartoon-based, and then later on they would release action figures based on the likenesses from the movies, but those were the only ways that you could get Ghostbusters toys was from the cartoon. I had the proton pack. I had the trap. I had Ecto-1. I didn't have the firehouse, which I always wanted. You know, I had all four main Ghostbusters. So, like, that that's how you got the toys as a kid. Yes. In fact, I had a set of those as well, Logan. And remember the proton packs in those? Like, all it was was a little thing that you spun. And right. that was yeah. <laughs> that was the proton that came out of the proton mm-hmm. pack. It was pretty amazing. Pretty fun as a kid. I had the actual proton gun they projected images of ghosts on walls and you would shoot at them mm-hmm. and stuff and yeah the real ghostbusters was i'd say it's more dark than you're saying it is logan like i remember being pretty scared about it now of course i was eight years old but yeah so that was the huge thing and then we had rights to go through and then you know what and this is going to be a thing we're going to really talk about next week people started getting too big for their britches the studio was pushing for this to come out literally two three years after the first one because it was such a big hit but we had bill murray who had to go do his serious stuff we had dan Aykroyd, who for some reason thought he was a romantic leading man and he did some romantic leading roles and he was also in spies like us and stuff like that they could not get all these guys together it's amazing that they did for Ghostbusters 2, but then we're going to talk later how they never could. I remember even reading, looking at magazines back then, like People Magazine, they would have articles on this and saying, yes, it's going to finally come out. All right. So we open up big five years later on the screen. Guess we don't need to ask when this takes place. I wonder if there were test screenings and audiences were so confused how all this slime developed and how Dana could have had this kid out of wedlock. So they were like, Ackroyd, put a title card up there. The very first shot, we see slime slipping through a crack. And I found something interesting about this movie this time I watched it, guys. Slime was such a huge part of the fun behind the first film. So the compromise here was to just multiply it and make it a huge part of this plot. Uh, right off the bat, how do we feel about that, guys? I mean, it is a huge... It's like, I wanted to say, like, running no pun intended like it's running through this plot like it's all over i don't mind it until you mention that like i had no idea but like it seems like a, a worthwhile choice to kind of you know springboard off of but that's the movie we got so it's a little off-putting only because it could very well not be a supernatural component it could just be new york sewers having a bad reaction <laughs> which would it be the most surprising thing? I mean, let's not forget this this is the same sewer system that spawned both alligators and ninja turtles. Yes. So red red yes. red slime would not surprise me all that much if it was underneath Times Square. Hmm. I will say, you know, in this opening scene, I really do like this tease. Obviously, not as good as the librarian who screams towards the camera in the first one, I don't think. But this escalation of the baby carriage going out of control and it belonging to somebody that we already know and love, Dana, uh, making me care about what's happening was great. I think Reitman directs this opening scene very well. Yeah, there's definitely tension. There's a baby involved, so obviously putting a baby in danger's way, like, that's legit terrifying. And if you're a kid, like, you know that's terrifying. Yeah, and as a father, that must have really gotten you. Yeah, I mean, my son Miles has kind of a little bit of a resemblance to Oscar. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, not too much, not, but, <laughs> like, you know, it's obviously seeing a, a baby roll into traffic. Thank God for movies like Speed that, you know, they're just full of soda cans. But <laughs> the first one plays it up in a comedic sense, that cold opening, if you will. This one's, like, legit, like, okay, this is, like, 
some shit's going down. Like this is kind of this is scary. Like what's happening in New York? It's unfortunate that this is the way that the movie chooses to open, considering it sets you up for a movie that you think is going to be considerably darker than it actually is. With child endangerment in particular, this made me think of all those 80s fantasy movies that we did, where kids were certainly palpable to being harmed or even possibly killed. So I, I think it did a really good job of setting things up, and it felt spiritually, no pun intended, like the first movie. That's interesting. So, in retrospect, you don't like the scene because of what it sets up, but in watching it for the first time, did you dig what you were seeing? You're like, oh, maybe this isn't as bad as I was expecting. More or less, yes. I found it quite effective. All right. So, there is something I'm not going to compliment me here, however, and that's the score. They obviously did not get Elmer Bernstein back, as I guess they felt they could make what's happening mesh with any music they play in the background. But while the first score was so, it has some iconic moments in it. Obviously, the theme song, you know, which they reuse here along with another one that we'll talk about later. They rehashed some themes, and at times they even had it had a gothic horror aspect to it. But this music feels like it could have been taken from any '80s comedy, even in the horror parts. Now, Matt, I know you don't really notice the score as much as I do. In fact, I think every single review we do, I mention it because I do think it has a part in how I feel about a movie because it kind of helps how I feel. What about you, Matt? Did you notice how bad the score was in this? Let me say for the record that the only reason why you notice scores more than I do is because you choose to bring them up much more often than than I do. It's not that I don't notice them that unless they're really bad or really great, I don't feel the need to draw attention to them. But, oh boy, did I notice. I noticed it in the negative connotation on this viewing. So much of it sounds like rejected music from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. That's all all I could think of. Like It feels like leftovers from, I think of Danny Elfman's music that he ships out, which he's been prone to do from time to time. It doesn't always mesh with with what you're seeing on screen, and it kind of takes me out of the movie at key point. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, like... I mean, it's not... The first one didn't have, like, the best score, but I think it matched the antics and the bumbling comedy mm-hmm. of the first one to, like, a, to a point where it was, just like... It, I don't want to use the word iconic, but it was definitely, like, if you could... Like, if you heard it, you were like, that's Ghostbusters. This one, if you were to play that for me, I'm like, I couldn't tell you that it was from this movie. You know, obviously, if it's layered into a scene, you know, but if you you pulled it out, like, individually, I wouldn't be able to kind of say, oh, like, that's from that movie. That's a great call. There, you could pull any piece of music out of that first Ghostbusters movie, and you say, oh, it's Ghostbusters. You pull out of this, as Matt said, too, this could have been out of anything from the 80s, you know? It uh, just does not stick out at all. Also, another thing I gotta say, in the first one, we had the emblem show up, we had a ghost in its little red circle, and we're like, oh, wow, like we're in Ghostbusters. But in this one, why would their emblem be holding up two fingers? Is it because of the peace? That they're going to try to do throughout the course of this movie, like making New York, you know, have enough peace to kill the bad guy towards the end. Why would the emblem be holding up two fingers? And I don't know why that bugs me so much, but it does. Oh, I, I hate the logo so fucking much. I absolutely hate it. Like, okay, I'm not the I only one. I understand why because it's the most obvious form of self-marketing for a movie that has two in the title. But it, it goes to show that this movie is more of a cartoon, just based on what it's seeing, than the actual cartoon that was created. <laughs> From the 1980s Ghostbusters, everything feels as PG as possible without those moments of darkness that the first one has. Because, like, when you watch the first one as a child, you have the sense that you're almost getting away with something because so much of it yeah. is not what you were finding in your typical 
media that you were consuming at the time. Like you got guys that are chain smoking, drinking, getting blowjobs from <laughs> Yeah. There's none of that in this movie. This is like what would happen if like Disney got a hold of Ghostbusters. I completely agree with you, and there are moments in this movie that come up that we're that me and Logan are going to mention that are actual references to the cartoon. So it makes me think that maybe the cartoon had more to do with the creation of this movie than the movie had had to do with the creation of the cartoon. It's a weird dynamic that they're trying to pull here. The first one, you know, aside from lack of severe cursing, like the first one, it, to me, it's sometimes borderline as art. And this is well after the whole PG-13 creation, because that was in 1984 with the whole Gremlins, Indiana Jones, uh-huh. and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, we'll get to it, but, like, I think the whole formation slash look of Janine one is pure cartoon, yeah. as opposed to just kind of like the raised in the streets of New York, like Janine, who is, like, just rough and tumble, and, like, obviously Annie Potts still kind of maintains, like, but, like, she's more of the red-haired sex pot that you would see in the cartoon. I can't believe I just call her a cartoon character a sex pot, but, like, she had, like, those moments where you're just like, oh, okay, and she didn't seem like the same character at all, because, like, the first one, just, like, she's really gritty, and she doesn't take any shit, and this one, she's just kind of, like, warming up to, like, Lewis and, and just kind of being, like, sincere and sweet. And it's, like, a complete character alteration from the first movie. But, yeah, it, this one does have more kid-friendly vibes, especially with the baby involved. But, like, not for nothing. And, obviously, we'll get to him when we get to him and, and dissect the character all we want. But, like, Vigo's got some pretty scary moments. You know, obviously, as a six-year-old kid watching in the theater and seeing his, like, face kind of emerge from a painting, like, that's like, whoa, this is, like, this is creepy. So we see the Ghostbusters pull up to a birthday party, and the kids make it known that they'd rather have He-Man at their party. Fuck this was a kids. cute little jab at... By the way, He-Man was off the air, like, a, by a year or two by the time this movie had come parties. out. Ghostbusters all the way. That's just me. That's true. But, uh, you know, this was a nice little jab at Filmation, like I had mentioned earlier, that the whole legal dispute that they had. So these kids telling the Ghostbusters are full of crap, and that's why they went out of business. Might as well have been 12-year-old Garrett Collins. I really liked this scene and found myself chuckling quite a bit while it was on. It was kind of funny that this was my complete attitude coming in. Like, you guys are done with. Why are you on my screen again? I mean, it it seems like it would be what they would do to kind of get money. Although, I feel like... And that's mm-hmm. Ivan Reitman's son, right? The one who's like, my dad says you... Yeah, yeah, that's the one that. who's directing the new one. Yeah. yeah, which is crazy. But, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a funny little opening. Like, they've been obviously, like seen as frauds and like nothing really happened but clearly like stuff did happen so i don't know why like there's an issue one of the things i actually like about this movie is how everybody just shits on the ghostbusters i think all that also <laughs> stuff is pretty funny and i believe that was actually in dan Aykroyd's original script of the first one the idea was that they repeatedly would get dirt kicked over them in the first part of the movie and they'd have to build themselves up. I mean, they kind of do to an extent in the one that they made. But the idea that they're losers and nobody believes them, I think that's an interesting idea to really carry out for the whole movie, even though the premise in and of itself is very hard to swallow considering that at the end of the first movie there were so many witnesses that there's no Mm -hmm. way people would not believe the Ghostbusters. Winston says that parties are out now, and after all they did for the city, they're feeling a little underappreciated. Dana, meanwhile, she goes to Egon and describes what happened with the baby carriage. I like how they're doing this little inverse of how the first film started by having Egon experimenting on this angry couple. Although it goes to what you were saying, Matt. Isn't this just kind of like a rehash of the first one? This was back at a time where, you know, people talk about this nowadays, but even back then, 
there was a propensity to do the exact same movie. Like this, this was not an uncommon method by any means. Well, you know, I think of stuff like Caddyshack Two, where it's almost the same goddamn movie, just with all the yucks taken out. Look at the vacation movies that were happening around this time. It's so funny we did this. We're doing this a good six months after Gremlins Two because I think this movie fails at a lot of the things that Gremlins Two succeeds at, where you take the same basic structure, nearly identical stories on both fronts. But there's so much imagination, and spiritually, they do feel kind of connected. Like, Gremlins 2, I don't think, is PG-ified in the way that this is. So, mm. I, I appreciate that I saw Gremlins 2 for the first time, because I've always heard those movies, this and Gremlins 2, kind of in the same circles. And spoiler alert, I gave Gremlins 2 a 9. I can't say I'm going that high for this one, unfortunately. <laughs> Seems like a, kind of like a you know, worthwhile place for Egon to be. You know, obviously, it's a kind of a mean-spirited when he's like, oh, what if, let's see what happens when we take away the dog or the puppy? Yeah. Like, that doesn't seem yeah. like an Egon thing to do. Like, Egon has, like, kind of, like, a like a sharp sense of humor, like a biting sense of humor, but, like, not in a way that's almost, like, spiteful or mean. So I was like, wow, yeah, that seems, call. like, very not, like, his character, but, you know, I guess it's just we're hitting the comedic notes. We also hear that... Dana is concerned about Peter since they didn't end on the best of terms. Now this goes back to a huge problem I have with The Force Awakens. Return of the Jedi had such a finality to it and such a happy ever after feel that seeing Han and Leia fight in The Force Awakens made me almost instantly turn on it. And hearing that Dana and Peter didn't last, even while we see her pushing a baby in the beginning, almost had the same effect on me. Not to mention, when you have to convolute this whole thing of Dana having this kid, so her and Bankman were together, what, like a year maybe? And then she goes on tour, she gets with that guy from the first one, I guess, is what they're saying. And she has a kid out of wedlock. And Given how he's portrayed in the first movie as a bullshit artist, I'm not surprised that his relationship didn't last. Which is also why I don't have the problem that you do with Han Solo. I knew that was not going to last. Uh-huh. As far as the timeline, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's one of my big issues, is that... This movie starts around Thanksgiving and ends around New Year's. A lot of shit happens in this movie in the span of a little over like, Yeah. Just the court case alone would take months to solve. That, that, that's the most, like, that's like the fifth most unrealistic thing in this movie, and I know it's a movie called <laughs> for, for Christ's sake, but it's, it's one of those things I'm trying to find some level of enjoyment discussing the movie that I did not get while watching the movie. I mean, like, it seems to be just a natural, like, way that they would handle it. Like, they broke up. Obviously, spoiler alert for a, a really old movie. But, like, they get back together. Like, it seems like to be, like, the thing that they would just do because it's, like, I mean, some would call it lazy just to kind of be like, oh, they broke up. How come they broke up? It didn't work out. Like, you know, they got back together or whatever. It would be a, more interesting to see them to kind of together and see where they've progressed over five years. But, obviously, they're kind of, like... This movie almost takes the element of, like, rebuilding from scratch. Obviously, like, the Ghostbusters are seen as frauds, even though there was a thing. The guys seem like they're all separated out, but they still kind of, like, maintain contact. So it almost seems like, okay, we're going to kind of ignore, but not ignore what the first movie did in the sequel, if that makes any sense. But, like, just kind of, like, mm-hmm. rebuild everything. And, like, they basically kind of rebuild themselves and, like, rebrand themselves as, like, okay, like, we are these people 
and this is what happened, and yada, yada, yada. Let me bring up a compromise here. You know, I'm a huge, I've mentioned this podcast a hundred times, I'm a huge Sigourney Weaver fan. Uh, she's perhaps my favorite actor actress out there. So I like seeing her back. She probably had the most juice going into this to come back because everyone else had kind of fallen by the wayside and did their own thing in the years leading up to this, as I mentioned earlier. How would we feel if instead of doing this whole story of her having this child, we have a whole new woman having a child and we just get her out of the film? In my mind, I think that would have worked better than to bring this character back. I think it would have worked provided that she was also not someone there just to hook up with Venkman or one of the other Ghostbusters. She has to be portrayed much more, I think, independently. Maybe she's already married. They don't do the thing where the father's out of the picture. The actual conceit is solely here to keep Sigourney Weaver in the movie. Of all the appearances, as far as the story goes, hers feels the most obligatorily Hollywood decision of we need her by any means necessary. The thing about this is, is like, I mean, it's not a bad idea to kind of recast, not even recast, just bring in somebody new, but it's then you run the risk of, is it too similar to the first movie where it's like, we're kind of reintroducing a new female character that like has no idea what's going on, what's the slime all about? Like, Data is kind of like the window that the audience sees the world because it's like Venkman, Winston, you know, Ray and Egon kind of like all understand the paranormal and Dana came in and was just like, okay, this shit's in my fridge, how do I deal with it? And then to retread on those steps is kind of like, people could also view that as problematic. Bringing her back in, it's like it's familiarity, but it's also at the same time, like, it is familiarity, but you have the whole, like, rebuilding process, so it's like, I guess it would make more sense to bring in somebody new, or a new character, but I also agree with Matt that, like, maybe just keeping her just the foundation of having it be a person who has no emotional or romantic ties to Ghostbusters and just be a character who, like, just kind of exists solely in the purpose of she's just dealing with some shit and she needs help. We cut to Peter Venkman as he now has a syndicated TV show as he's talking to some schlub who claims to have psychic powers that show the world ending. So at this point, we've been reintroduced to every Ghostbuster. How do we feel about where they all are now, guys? Do we like where they are? We already talked about the Ghostbusters and the birthday party and how we all feel that, yeah, that is exactly how that would be. What about Venkman here? I love seeing Peter here. In fact, this is exactly what I envisioned him doing, honestly. Well, it's funny because in the first movie, she says you're more like a game show host. So this, I mean, obviously it's not a game show. His snarky attitude and dealing with the paranormal in a more comedic, like, talk show sense makes sense this is me just having an all my own personal gripe but like what is this series gripe against winston the first movie introduced him later that's fine he's not on the poster mm-hmm. and then in this movie he's like conspicuously absent until the court case and like even then he's not even helping out the guys is, is it because he's the everyman he's they're the main three and they don't he would have helped he would have done stuff like i don't know why they just kind of ignore him except for like the beginning birthday party like why isn't he more of a present he's a member of the team you know why And I sure hope Mr. Hudson does not hear this. Because, you know, in that first movie, he had such a dry sense of humor. And I chuckled at a whole bunch of things he said. In this one, when he is a part of it, like when the train comes at him and his helmet's falling off later, I don't like him. I don't like the way he sells comedy. Because he doesn't do well with comedy, I don't think. I don't like the way he's portrayed in this. And when he has to go big, it doesn't work. I think there's a more underlying issue. The first one, I guarantee if this was Eddie Murphy... He would have been in these movies a lot yeah. more than he actually is. And Absolutely. Two, 
everybody is much broader in this movie. They are very much distilled to the one characteristic that they all have in the first one. Bigman's snarky. Ray is a pretty much a child in a man's body. Egon's the nerd. Winston's the everyman. They feel very deluded. And Winston is borderline Richard Priory stuff in this movie. That's like, a good point. Like, it's yeah. all crazy reactions, and I think of those Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movies, that's all I could think of watching him in this movie. And it, it's kind of a little upsetting. He gets a couple lines here or there, but for the most part, he's slumming it may not be the right word, but it's clear they don't know what to do with him. And I feel the same way about Bill Murray be honest. I think this is the most 50-50 performance he's ever given. Half the time he knocks it out of the park, and half the time he looks like he would rather be anywhere else. I still think he's as funny. I don't think he's as well-written. And we mentioned in that first film, it had such a smooth vibe to it. Everybody was playing off each other so well, because even Reitman said, we improv the majority of that movie. Here, everything seems written, and I don't know if it's because Bill Murray doesn't want to be here, but I completely agree with you. There are times when he's hilarious when we get to the toaster later. That is just a hilarious scene. But other times, he's just kind of going through the motions. It's really weird. In the beginning here, I like him a lot. I like when he's pulling Ray's ear when he gets the information out of him about Dana and all that. That's all great stuff. But yeah, the majority of the time, he's getting through it. I don't feel like he's phoning it in. I feel like he's there. I don't feel like, especially when I was watching when I was younger, and like even now, like I don't feel like there's too much of a disconnect. Like I feel like in the first movie, he's giving it a little bit more. In this movie, like it's less, but I don't feel like... I never sensed that it was like too much less. Like I feel like as we progress later on in his career, I feel like it's, it's definitely... I feel like there's more of that. I'm not really giving it my all, but I don't really sense mm. that here. We are then introduced to Janos who is running an art gallery. Now, I know this actor, Peter McNichol, from Ali McBeal, and a movie I loved as a kid called Dragon Slayer. Uh, something I actually considered putting on our fantasy retrospective, actually. That was a movie I watched a lot as a kid. But here, he is the gateway to letting the evil loose, and we're going to talk about the big bad of this movie shortly. But first, boys, how do we feel about Janos in this movie? The saving grace, if you ask me. I think he's the funny... Wow! you got to be kidding me. Uh, Goudreau. Uh, By the way, you know, I just re-listened to our Bond retrospective. This is the same guy who defended Sergeant Pepper from those Roger Moore movies. So let, let's get let's get that out there before you defend this character. I persisted. <laughs> All right, put your cards on the table. Why do you like Janusz? I hate using this as justification. I just find him amusing. He, he's the one part of this movie that feels... Disney-fied, but not in a way that I find distracting, because he's not threatening. He's not really scary, although it's kind of disturbing when he shows up in drag later on. But that's oh, sort of, yeah, frightening. That's a different yeah. kind of disturbing, but I, mm-hmm. let's be honest. There's an alternate reality where this role should have been played by Tim Curry. Let me throw that out that's there. Not, first yeah, that's not a bad idea. But, but I think he's great. I think he's just fun to watch. Like I don't, I don't know how to quantify it. <laughs> Logan, be my saving grace here, sir. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much on your side I'm going to be, Garrett, because, like, I don't know what where the accent came from. I think that's a very, very interesting choice. And obviously, New York City is a melting pot, so it's definitely possible. I enjoy him. You know, I don't know if, like, Matt said Disney-fied, which I think is fair. Like, he does seem like the puppet of a, a master villain, you know, kind of like the Ludwig of Gaston, if you're going, like, Beauty and the Beast kind of, like, idea. Ah, wow. I'm talking about the cartoon, not the live-action version. Fuck that. Um, 
But uh, <laughs> no, like he's he's you know he's the puppet in the in the grand scheme of things, and he seems like just kind of like the right amount of doofus but good natured person. But obviously his kind of stalkerness of of Dana, like that's where he kind of gets into like it's less villainy and more like creepy because like he literally follows her or comes into her apartment like at, like at two o'clock in the morning or whatever. There's a way to be like a bad guy, and like I understand he's obviously there for like the kid, but like that's almost more like. Stuff I don't even know how like fly in a movie nowadays. That's a great set of points that you just made because let's face it, everything that you just described is pretty much what Rick Moranis did in the last film, right? But he did it in a more comedic way. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of this really being a character displaying what if Rick Moranis from the first movie was a scumbag who couldn't control his instincts. That I can go with, but I think it's just his over his topness. And you mentioned the accent. The accent was his choice. Actually, going back to your point earlier, the Sigourney Weaver method, it would have been interesting because now that I'm thinking about it, what if they made Rick Moranis that role? Because him and Dana already had something yeah. going on in the first movie, and they kind of just like altercated his role and made him Vigo's like, path to Oscar. Uh, that's a good point, and it's, it did go through my mind that maybe this could have been where Rick Moranis ended up instead of putting this character here. But Matt also makes a point, too, where he also gives the movie a different flavor, whereas the majority of this movie feels like a rehash, and according to Matt and maybe the two of us, a less rehash of that first film. And here, this is a different flavor that we hadn't seen before, and that I kind of like. I just don't like how big he goes in this. Another weird choice is taking this successful traveling musician in Dana Barrett and making her an artist. One doesn't have anything to do with the other. And this, again, I, I think this is, this is going to describe the script to a T. It felt lazy. It's a weird transition from career to career. It's literally just placing Dana in the same kind of environment where she was in the first. Well, the first one is more indirect. Like she lives in the apartment, but that building is haunted. So that kind of works. Mm -hmm. Here, it's just like she's literally in the face of danger, just unknowing about it. They took the word artist very broadly. <laughs> like They're like, yeah. oh, because she's a musician, of course she's a talented painter. All I could think of is fucking, I don't know why I had this on the mind, but it reminded me of Wonder Woman. What's she going to do with all of her time? Oh, she's going to work in a museum because she's immortal. Like That's all I could think of when I saw Mm. You know, like working on that statue and stuff. So in afterlife, she's going to be like an opera singer or something. She's just going to really <laughs> run the gamut of like what she could do. I think Sigourney Weaver can do a lot of things, but singing opera, I don't think it's one of them. We start getting teases about how powerful this Vigo painting is as it makes an almost Freddy from the wall type move while Janos expresses his frustrations of striking out with Dana. Let's get this out of the way right now. How do we feel about Vigo the Carpathian? I guess this is the one thing that Ghostbusters 2 does better than the original is that the villain feels more foreboding, and he has more of a presence over the overall movie than Gozer does. I will say, the biggest negative, you know, Garrett, we talk about our least favorite cliches and plot points. I am so mm -hmm. fucking sick of the, I need to be reborn through someone else's child. I am so dust with that in the yeah. goddamn 80s movies that we've done. This has to be like the fourth or fifth one since... The last year, because we did it with Freddy Krueger. It was a mm -hmm. Jason movie that was about Jason. that. I'm sure there's others that I forget. And I'll have to look through the list. Michael Myers. They Michael Myers did it in Halloween Six. Yeah, like th this was such a trope in the '80s, and 
watching it again now, it's just, I'm, I'm so fucking tired of it. But at this point, it was kind of, Nightmare 5 was the same year, so it was kind of in the beginning stages here. But you're right, doing these series, like we've seen it so many times, it gets to be kind of old hat. Yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, kind of similar to the first one, there's a name, and there's obviously, as Matt said, he is more of a presence. As a kid, I was far more scared of Vigo than of um, Gozer because Gozer really doesn't show up to the end and then Vigo is kind of like there's just a lot of more like presence and just kind of like the whole like you know pushing himself out of the painting kind of creeped me out as a kid so that's an image that obviously stuck with me for a while and both these movies I would definitely say that the villain the major villain is undeveloped I mean obviously in the first movie Stay Puft Marshmallow Man has more of an impact than Gozer herself but here it's just is it the logical next step in, in the villain being coming out of a painting you know I guess but I like I don't you know, obviously, despite being, you know, an underdeveloped character as far as, like, a villain's concerned, because, you know, we'll get to it, but the anticlimactic nature of the final battle, but overall, it, he works fine to me. You know, I, I don't really have any major criticisms about it. him. Weird sidebar here. The actor who played him, I guess, was a real dastardly dude. His two claims to fame were this and playing a goon who dies in an elevator in the first Die Hard film. But he always resented that he was overdubbed. Max Van Cito is the one who does his voice. And uh, he, he died broken unhappy in 2004. As far as my feeling on the character, I'm not a huge fan of him. I actually find him quite silly. Every time he talked, you know what I thought of? And this is such a weird reference. It made me think of Nuclear Man from Superman 4. Because of the the huge, I, we're going to make it very loud just to make it loud. I just find him quite silly. So we see the original Ghostbusters in research mode, and Peter finally gets out of Ray that it is a case involving Dana Barrett. They show up to Dana's apartment, and their reunion is quite awkward until they go examine the baby. And this movie rapidly turns into three Ghostbusters and a baby. Let's not forget, this was at the height of, in the late 80s, there were a lot of movies done with babies on the side you know we had three men and a baby we had baby boom it was a thing back then to do these movies and so and here's ghostbusters getting right into the act i fucking hate every scene where bill murray is having to play with this kid it's pain it's absolutely painful to watch and they give him such awful lines where it's like you know i should have been your father and all this other stuff he doesn't feel like the same character that he was in the first one like at all well i shouldn't say at all because there's parts where he kind of carries over, but like I said, everyone in this movie is oversimplified compared to what they were in the first one. You know, the Peter Dana scenes, they're kind of awkward because, you know, every time he talked about, like, I think she says, marriage of kids, you fall asleep. That's why they broke up. Okay, that's trivial, but whatever. I like this stuff with the baby, especially, you know, when they're analyzing the room and, like, you know, Ray and Egon are, like, tickling the baby and, like, you know, doing the snapping. And then it's just funny how the like the analysis of like Egon didn't have toys, and then he says, and Ray goes, mm. "You didn't even have a slinky," and he's like, "We had a, we had a slinky, but I straightened it." That seems like something that Egon would say. Yeah, I like the scenes with uh, Murray and the baby. I don't really know if I have the kind of like criticism of like, oh well, I think they're phoning it in. Like I don't feel like I see that here as much as other people have. I mean, I don't know if I just feel like, you know, maybe I haven't seen him in the right movies. I never feel like I feel like he's always kind of just playing this like monotone kind of character. But like I like the scenes with the baby because it's like I feel like I like to see him or at least that character in a, in a different kind of light. Matt has a point though. This is feels like a more watered-down version of Venkman than we saw last time when he's trying to get in Dana's pants and he's the one who pushes Ray to open the Ghostbusters up. He's this, not the centerpiece, 
but he is a highlight of that film. I don't feel like he's a highlight here. And that's kind of my main issue. And I think the reason why we think he's phoning it in is because it just seems like his scenes don't have the power that last week's movie did. The Ghostbusters find nothing wrong with Oscar, and they head out in the streets and see that there are huge readings coming from the streets where the carriage took off. We cut to the Ghostbusters jackhammering into the streets, and this may be my favorite scene of the movie, actually, as the cops ask them if they have a permit to be here, and they have to make up a story as to why they're cutting into the streets. Probably my favorite scene because it literally feels like the only scene with comedy that doesn't feel forced. This is pretty great stuff. It also doesn't feel overly improvised, either. This looks like something that was actually constructed on a screenwriting level, so I think that's why... It works as well as it does because the the improv, when it's noticeable here, it's nowhere near as organic as it is in the first movie. And I think this is one of the few scenes in the movie that actually works as far as being routinely funny. Yeah, I love this scene. Touching yeah. upon the points you guys said, like it feels kind of like similar in vain to the first one. They're kind of finding something out. When they say, you know, somebody's got to go down there and they both stare at Ray, like that just seems like something that, like he would have to do because he mm-hmm. was forced into it. They send Ray down there and I've been kind of hard on this movie. I, I, it's not that I'm having a bad time watching it. I'm just noticing more negative things than the previous times I watched it because I was always a rather a, a kind of defender of this movie, but I'm noticing more bad things this time than I had in the past. But here, here's I'm going to give a compliment. Taking what was always New York's reputation, which is that they are grumpy, self-aware assholes, and making that into what essentially becomes fuel for the movie's villain, I think is a great plot point. Now, where they take it, we'll talk about, but I do think that taking this slime, it's making the evil happen, is great to me. It's very creative. You know, that's one of those things I've always said about Dan Aykroyd, is that as that shit insane as I think he is most of the time. Occasionally there's stuff that really does have a good through line, and I think this idea of New York's just the constant busyness and stress amplifying in this form of red Kool-Aid, basically, uh, I think that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, I mean, Matt touched upon it perfectly. Like, New York City is, is stressed, you know, the New York Minute, and people hustle and bustle, and just kind of like the slime amplifying all those negative behaviors into something that's you know unruly is is definitely a good idea it'd be interesting to see especially in the midst of pandemic what that slime would be like now oh my goodness so there you go uh, jason reitman if you're gonna make a fourth or a fifth one <laughs> but no i th- i think it's a solid idea like you know what would the world be like if the paranormal was basically formed by your own, own negative and depressive thoughts Ray gathers samples of the slime as Peter fends off the cops, and some of the effects in the sewer uh, aren't the best. You know, we, we had some compliments for last week's movie. It did have its less than impressive effects, but I don't think there's as much of that as there is in this one. I think they're perfectly adequate. I found that as I've gotten older, I try not to criticize effects as often as I used to, unless they are so terrible or so distracting that they take me out of the movie. I have issues with some of the designs that they come up with, not necessarily the effects themselves. And I'll talk about those when we get to them. The river of slime doesn't look too bad. Uh-huh. Later on, Janos and Vigo effects are kind of iffy. Um, but I feel like in comparison to the 84 movie, I think those actually surprisingly hold up better than the ones do here. The ghosts which we'll get to in the courtroom, they seem a little bit more cartoony and less um, refined as the ones in the first one. So I, I guess, you know, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier was like, you know, it has more of the cartoon feel than the first movie feel. 
there's some issues with the, C, uh, the you know the CGI. I guess CGI. I don't know if that even exists at that time, but you know, they, no, yeah, no, yeah, the, Maybe a few years. The effects uh, don't look as solid as they do in the first movie, which is crazy considering this is five years later. Yeah, weird. Yeah, Janos makes a surprise visit to Dana, which just comes off as creepy, and Wrightman even shoots it as such. You know, he's wear- using red filters during the scene. We then cut to a court scene with Lewis being their lawyer, and a half hour into the movie, we finally see some ghosts being busted. Guys, how do we like this reintrodu- reintroduction to ghost busting? You know, I think it, it's it's a nice little setup because you see all the proton packs on the table. You know, the slime buildup of tension. With you know, we talk about the score, but like you can clearly tell that there's a rising moment of like something's going to happen, and the the two. Uh, Scalari brothers bursting from wherever it is. I think it's a jar of slime, actually. It's a nice little moment. Mm-hmm. Again, obviously, the comedic poor timing of Winston aside, it'd be nice if he was there with uh, the Ghostbusters, you know, to lend a hand. But I like mm-hmm. it. And I think it, it has nice comedic moments. Like, you know, Lewis is like, they don't, you know, exp- uh, my clients exposing themselves. And then, you know, Bankman comes in and says, you don't want us exposing ourselves. And I feel like if you guys are talking about him phoning it in, I feel like here is where he's more like Bankman because he's like, you know, making that little laugh. And then, you know, mm-hmm. he's got the song at the end with the other two and, you know, making faces and Egon. I, I really do like the kind of the quote unquote reinduction of the Ghostbusters here. It feels very, um, I don't know, it's just fun. I have a couple observations on this scene in particular. First one is what I was talking about with the effects. I think that the brothers, they remind me of Slimer way too much, where they're so off-puttingly bizarre that they don't feel like they were ever actually people. And it kind of clashes with all the other ghosts that are in the movie. Sort of the inverse of that Crypt Keeper taxi driver from the first movie, where it's the one yeah. thing that doesn't mesh with the rest. I do agree that Bankman's got some good lines here. I think Lewis actually has some of the best lines where it's like, yeah, I turned into a dog, they helped me. He sits down, and he guys like, that was a great defense. It was pointless, but it was great. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great line. Point number three, <laughs> to redo the same movie, especially with this type of, like, you know, bringing them up for past crimes, how is Walter Peck not in this movie at all? That's a great point. I don't know, because he was kind of a, a, a sub-villain from that last film. Where he would be, I don't know. And they don't even mention him, which is very weird. I do know, though, that these Scolari brothers, these ghosts that they catch, Logan, this is a tie-in to the real Ghostbusters cartoon, is it not? I honestly, I couldn't even tell you if that was true because I, I haven't rewatched that cartoon in so, quite some time, so I couldn't even couldn't even tell you if that was accurate or not. It, it is a tie-in, and so, again, it just goes to show that the cartoon is helping the film make decisions, and I'm not sure about that decision. In this ghostbusting scene, I do like the do re Egon. I, th- I thought that was kind of fun. I like the two in the box. I like that scene when they're done. I don't know. There are parts of this I do really like. When it doesn't feel like a rehash, I kind of like it. The problem is 95% of this movie is a goddamn rehash. So after this scene, we get another montage of the Ghostbusters being back, complete with new commercials. We are again retreading, boys. But I do think it is important to show that the Ghostbusters are indeed back. What, do you, what about you guys? Did you like the montage as much as the last time? I mean, it seems like it's a very parallel to the first one, which I don't think really needed to be established because, like, the first one, like, they're building their quote-unquote franchise. The second one is like, okay, well, we're back. For the essence of not trying to be, like, too, you know, not to complain about it, like, why do we feel like we need to redo this again? Like, okay, you're back. That's it. You know, we know yeah. who, what you've done. Everybody else should know the general population of New York City, if not the world, should know what you've done. 
but it's you know it's kind of like you know and obviously Matt says Thanksgiving to New Year's but like I like seeing the Ghostbusters and like the Christmas hat so like you know obviously if the first one's more like a Halloween based movie the second one you can watch around you know the Thanksgiving Christmas holidays New Year's holidays yeah so the, obviously the late 80s were more of like the R&B like rap so they kind of take mm-hmm. that vibe whereas the first one was pretty much just I mean aside from the score was more of just the Ray Parker Jr. song. This is one of those what I call checkbox moments where we have to follow the template of the first movie because I'm pretty sure from a timestamp perspective, they're almost in identical places. All right, so Logan brings up the Ray Parker Jr. of this movie, Bobby Brown, doing the song here. I did and do really like this song, actually. Bobby Brown actually does get even get a cameo in this. How do we feel about the song here as opposed to last time? Not a huge R&B guy, but... If you're going to compare it to Bond songs, it wouldn't be the worst. In the- yeah. <laughs> I had the soundtrack on cassette to yeah. age. For those who don't know, cassettes were these rectangular things that you would put, in, put into boom boxes and Sony Walkmans <laughs> that you would listen to before those CDs became popular. Amazing. What? Those sound amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially when you got the gray ones, the gray clear ones, because that's how you know you got yeah. a good one. But I, I pretty much listened to this album on repeat before and during and after the movie came out. But nothing touches the Ray Parker Jr. song in my eyes. We see that Janine is back, this time with a red bob cut. Another reference to the cartoon. God damn, it was so weird seeing, yeah, after having her in that last film, again, just be so ballsy. It was weird seeing Janine in this light. She's, she's, so, she's so damn filtered down from last time. That... All the sass is gone. The, the yeah. idea... Yes! In the first one, she didn't take shit from anybody. Here, she feels like just your average secretary. Absolutely. And it's, she's, so, he's, she's nerded up, too. They overcompensated in her wardrobe, too. So just good to see her, but I wish she was handled better than she actually is. Yeah, I mean, I touched upon it earlier that she seems very different than she was in the first movie, and Matt said it pretty well that, like, that New York sass, the grittiness, the take-no-shit attitude is, is completely out of her character. I understand that the characters from the cartoon are supposed to be the same as the movies, but to reinvent the character mm-hmm. from the first movie into a character who's supposed to be more like the cartoon, it's almost mm-hmm. like bothersome because that first movie established that like she was like she was an advocate of the guys, but like she just was like, you know, she Ghostbusters, what do you want? Like that's that's not here. That's gone. So the Ghostbusters try instigating the mood slime. And this is where we learn that it feeds on bad vibes, like a cop at a donut factory. And they even play it out of a toaster using music. And this was kind of an amusing scene to me. I did like when, what is it, Egon? Was it Egon or Ray who admits to actually sleeping with it? Yeah. This brings back some of that rude humor from that first movie that I enjoyed so much. Venkman gets recognized from the world of sidekicks by a guy whose other favorite show is Bassmasters. And uh, he visits Dana at work. And we get in the midst of a love triangle. Peter calls Vigo a sissy. And here's where we learn that the actual character, here's a surprise, wasn't a nice guy. He was kind of a dick. Couldn't tell by looking at him. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> Vigo the butch? Dana starts a bath for Oscar and the slime starts to literally try to eat her up. When the movie does this different weird type horror stuff, I think it works. What doesn't work, again, and I'm with Matt on this, are are when Peter talks to baby Oscar bits that they keep doing. But this scene of her almost getting eaten up by this slime. Matt, this is almost David Cronenberg shit right here. I I wouldn't go that far, sir. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm just saying by the look of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, all right, I don't mean like gore hounds or anything are going to like this. But what I mean, like, if you look at the imagery from Videodrome, it's 
kind of the same thing. Kind of. Two, two points. One is, I think her acting is so good, but it doesn't warrant this type of movie. Like, when she's like, when the game is being taken away. For this kind of movie, like, this is not on the level of the her being dragged into the fucking kitchen in her chair. And one of my favorite nitpicks in the movie is, if you notice, uh, the bathtub is styrofoam, and at one point it completely folds over. If you oh, I didn't if you look at it really closely. Wow, how have you seen it only twice and noticed that? But <laughs> yeah. I've been watching it for twenty some odd years, and I never noticed that. Thirty I years. Observe. I feel like the first one has more elements of like kind of bona fide like scares. This one not so much. Mm-hmm. But this bathtub is like holy shit! Like that came out of like left field, and like in a way that. Tone wise, I feel that the first one is too like they always found a way to blend the world of like the comedy and I guess you could say the drama and the, the horror. And then this mm-hmm. one is kind of like okay, well you have Vigo who's got his moments, but like there's not enough put in elements of scares. So like when this bathtub like tries to eat Dana and the baby, like that's like holy shit, like okay, okay. But to the level that like it's never it never kind of you know, surpasses that moment where it's like, it's it's genuinely like super scary again. Egon gets the stats on Vigo the Carpathian and they think there's a connection between the slime and Vigo. In the midst of all this, Peter somehow gets himself a date with Dana as Janine and Lewis team up to babysit Oscar. This Janine, Lewis, these scenes where they get romantic with each other, I think they're cute. But my God, I never saw these two getting together, ever. Listen, I'm going to advocate for this because when, and maybe this is this geek Logan talking, when Lewis says, so do you want to play Boggle or Super Mario Brothers? It's one of my favorite lines. I don't know why. <laughs> you, I would, would. I, you, know, you would. You think that's I, one I of your favorite said to you, I said, I, this is, it's, I put it out on the table. I said, yeah, this is a Logan line. But yeah, it's like, I feel like in the first movie, I think there was more of a thing with Janine and Egon than there was with Lewis. And I mean, obviously, he was kind of like, cra- you know, crazed out at the time because he was under Gozer's spell or whatever. But like here, it's just kind of like, well, they're just babysitting together. And like, he's kind of nerdy and she's kind of nerdy. So like, they should be nerdy together. That's kind of like they just threw them together because of like. I guess in their minds that made sense. It feels like they're they're together solely because they don't know what else to do with these two characters. Like exactly. we we have them and we can save time by putting them in the same scene so we don't have to worry about crafting stuff to give them separate subplots. So after checking out the painting, they go down in the sewer to check that out again. And I, and I love that Murray got out of having the slime on him this time. He was like, look, five years ago, I had that shit all over me. I'm not going to do it this time. <laughs> it's also funny because in the first movie, he has the least amount of marshmallow goo on him at the end. So I don't know if that yes. was even then a thing. Uh-huh. I, I think it was. But of all the... There's no to- major tonal shifts in this movie. But I think the severed heads, that comes so far out of left field that mm-hmm. it's almost like a black spot on this entire movie where it's like, where the fuck did that come from? They explore and we get a real bizarre bit, as I mentioned earlier, of Winston almost getting run over by a ghost train. So Ray crawls out of the slime. And of course the Ghostbusters are now in the red as far as tempers go. I did like that. I did like that fact. I feel like the Avengers did this better to be perfectly honest when they're all arguing around the Tesseract. That's all. <laughs> like, like this movie just reminded me of other movies that did this shit better. I mean, I do like this scene for the fact that, like, obviously the slime does have an effect on them, and they're supposed to be working together, and obviously they're they're verbally not. It would have been interesting that kind of carried over. They realized it kind of too quickly 
And if it, it would have been interesting for it to play later on in the movie, which I guess it does with Ray a little bit, but to carry that like that method forward of like, okay, well they're now like against each other, they anti each other. So like, how would that play into the final like realm of like what? How are they going to come back together to you know defeat Vigo? But I like I do like the scene. So they find out that the slime is all flowing to the same spot, which is the museum. Of course, they go to tell Venkman, who was having a romantic dinner with Dana. And I did like this bit, too, of all these guys just covered in slime, walking in this huge and romantic restaurant. I don't know. This uh, this stuff I actually kind of liked. What about you guys? Did you guys like this? I do, because it's like Peter being like, like, what the fuck? But he's just like, okay, like looking at them with kind of like the same mindset as Dana does. And then obviously kind of similar to the first movie, they all kind of get arrested and... Then we kind of go through that thing. So Dana walks in on Janine and Lewis. Meanwhile, uh, Lenny the mayor once again walks into the film and the Ghostbusters attempt to warn him about the slime. And he has a funny response. Being miserable and treating other people like dirt is their God-given right. Every New Yorker's God-given right. Yeah, that's a great line. So their attempts to warn the mayor this time don't go anywhere, though the Ghostbusters are officially ruled, and the Ghostbusters are officially ruled crazy. Meanwhile, the bad rear projection of Vigo tells Janos to take the baby. <laughs> and Logan, this is your point about how these scenes with Janos and uh, Vigo, Vigo especially, with this back projection, not good. We then get a scene that actually got to me the first time I saw this movie. And in fact, it got me again this time as Janos shows up dressed in drag Wizard of Oz style and kidnaps Oscar as he's standing on the ledge, because apparently Vigo needs a human body to survive in this world, which is the plot point that Matt talked about earlier, and I can hear him sighing from here. God damn. Even when I was like a younger teenager, and I had seen a couple of the Freddy movies and stuff at this point, even at this point I was like, man, that's fucking weird. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll just move on. It's a little bizarre to see Janos in like Mary Poppins-style gear to get a baby instead of just him. But it's also funny that Dana is like, that's Janos in drag. Like, just. <laughs> yeah. Very observant art. You know, yeah, she got, she got it pretty quick, didn't she? Art orchestra, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> the Ghostbusters keep trying to explain themselves out by saying they made their toaster dance with the slime and that it's extremely dangerous. And all this goes to no avail. We cut to Dana, who's made her way to the museum in time to see that her baby is about to be sacrificed. At this point, I'm not sure you even care about Dana at this point. I just don't feel like they wrote her into this movie well. I know I made this point earlier, but I don't like how Dana falls into this story. She's, I mean, Ugh. like, I, I completely agree with you, Gary. Like, Sigourney Weaver, one of the best actresses of past and present generations. I mean, I don't know what she's actually done lately, but she's fucking Ripley. Like, that's the end. Like, that's all you need. So I feel like in the first movie, she obviously had a point because she was kind of like the windows to the Ghostbusters. She was the, the main kind of reason why this was all happening, because she was in just the wrong place at the wrong time. Here, they kind of write her into the situation, because in the grand scheme of things, kind of like Lewis and Janine, like, I feel like they just don't know what else to do with her, which is sad, because it's like she's a very great actress, but like she's here just because she's almost has to be the main connection between Vigo and Janos to the Ghostbusters. Yeah, well, once again, it just, to quote another Bill Murray movie, this literally feels like it got lost in translation. Oh, jeez. Womp, womp. Bring nothing but trouble. 
You're prepping. Bringing those yeah, puns you're, right you're, from. You're getting those dad jokes ready, man. I'm proud of you. Bringing those puns. He's keeping those going right from the fucking Fast and Furious retro. Good going, sir. Vigo floats the baby toward him, and we get another montage of ghosts escaping. I, I think the fur coats attacking was pretty amusing, but I'm not sure about bits like Cheech witnessing the Titanic <laughs> I love arrive. That, scene. that was a little. Better late than... Do you really? <laughs> Jesus Christ, you guys! You can't be serious. Relax. No, but you like you like Janos, so I that's why I said Janos that. Either. I'm team man on that one. Uh, no, uh, I like that line. I do like the better late than never. I think that's funny. It's a weird cameo by Cheech, but yeah. So I'll take his side and reciprocate that. I thought this gag was amusing. <laughs> God damn, I'm never gonna do comedies with you guys <laughs> ever. Because you're always wrong. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> the mayor's back is against the wall, and he releases the Ghostbusters from the psychiatric ward. The Ghostbusters arrive at the slime-covered museum that looks like a giant jello mold, and they see that they cannot get inside without a symbol to help the city rally behind them. So, they go to the Statue of Liberty, where Peter wonders if she's naked under the toga. Boys, you know, we had a pretty big scene that the three of us all agreed was pretty amazing to conclude the first Ghostbusters. Here, they're once again going to get something huge to roam the streets of New York, but this time it's going to be the Statue of Liberty. I got to get you guys' opinion. What do you guys think about this plot point? Uh, the law of diminishing returns, sadly. Trying to let replicate something and just not being able to recapture that magic. It does not work for me at all. It reminded me of the ending of the first X-Men movie, where it's almost like they ran out of money. I don't know, man. These scenes of the Statue of Liberty going through the streets, I thought that looked pretty good, actually. It does. Not the exciting climax that it should be because we've seen it before. It doesn't look bad by 1989 standards, but in comparison to the State Park Marshmallow Man, there's definitely some flaws in the Statue of Liberty, like, I guess, appearance. Obviously, being the big Nintendo guy I am, seeing Peter use the NES Advantage to control yeah. the Statue of Liberty was a big thing for yeah, me. I had that, too. Um, I don't know if they were just plugging money to Nintendo because they had games at the time, but like Super Mario Brothers and the NES Advantage in one Ghostbusters movie. Anyway, I like the use of concept, you know, the concept of using the slime for the toaster to kind of power up the Statue of Liberty, and like, Jackie Wilson's you know, love keeps lifting me higher. It's, it's an earworm, so I'm all about it. It's a fun scene, but definitely I agree with Matt. It's It's trying to replicate something that like, it's already been done. I don't know how you could go from there, like, go up, but like, I guess this is the most worthwhile kind of in succession kind of idea, but it, it's not as powerful as the State Bush Marshall Land for sure. So, Lewis suits up in Ghostbusters gear. He did this in the cartoon. I seem to remember him doing this yeah, in the cartoon. I vaguely remember that too. Yeah. New York helps them along, and the Ghostbusters show up just in time. Vigo escapes his painting as the Ghostbusters hose Janusz. They try fighting Vigo and find out that their proton packs don't work, to which Winston says, That was really stupid see when winston gives those types of lines i actually find him really funny yeah it seems like a like a first movie winston line so he grabs oscar as vankman chastises vigo and this growling bit again not only did it remind me of nuclear man from superman 4 but it also reminded me of <laughs> this is a fucking poll the bad guy from i come in peace that <laughs> Dolph Lundgren film <laughs> wow matt you've seen that one guess so <laughs> I guess so. I've seen it as much as anybody, so of course I've seen it. The singing New Yorkers start weakening Vigo to the point that he's back into the painting, but he takes over Ray. <laughs> this was weird. You know, I barely mentioned Ray this entire podcast. For a guy who spearheaded this franchise and wrote these movies, 
he's not really in them that much. What do you guys think about the possession of Ray here? Doesn't it just kind of come out? It's very last minute, yeah. I mean, they kind of hinted it when he's in the museum and he's like kind of like being hypnotized by the painting. But again, very similar to the first movie. It's very like even just the whole like him going back into the painting, Ray getting possessed, and then them like getting towards the end, just kind of like blowing the painting up into that like weird explosion is kind of like it's very quick, it's very fast paced, it's very anticlimactic, mm-hmm. you know. I must say the first movie they start with reason where they basically bully the villain to death <laughs> or into, into submission, <laughs> and then they say fuck it and just start using their weapons. See in the eighties, it's sort of the Care Bears method where they where they start <laughs> off. Like, Jesus. Curia, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my my. Go ahead, Matt, you tell us. Where, where basically, <laughs> the guy who was not born with the Care Bears were around is gonna lecture you about the Care Bears. <laughs> But there's that whole thing of like, oh god, this this conversation is getting very sidetracked. This is a Dan Aykroyd movie, so it's perfect. The Care Bears always try to reason, like, no, 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 we're here to help you. And then they say, fuck you, fire our Care Bears, stare, and just blow them to smithereens. It's the exact same thing here with their proton bags. I come in peace and Care Bears in the same 10 minutes. (laughs) This is fantastic. So they slime slash shoot Vigo, and he's wiped out in a poof of smoke. They all wake up, Janos, who is... Why am um, I dripping They all wake up, Janos, who is dripping with goo. We see a new Renaissance painting featuring the Ghostbusters. I don't know. Are they supposed to be reincarnated? That was... uh, Everything last time just felt so smooth, so on point. And this, like, I look at it and I'm like, God damn, where'd they pull this from? Maybe it's one of the fettuccines. And we see them walk out to the original Ghostbusters theme, which dissolves into Bobby Brown's as... Credits roll. All right, boys. That is Ghostbusters 2 on a scale of 1 to 10. What do we give this movie? You know, I'm pretty sure I know where Matt's going to go. So, Logan, sir, why don't you go ahead and throw some positives at us first. So, I know this movie, over the course of you know it being in existence, has been seen with a lot of you know criticism, hate. Obviously, it's not as good as the first one. And I, I'm saying that with all due respect, it's not as good as the first one. The first one, to me, is kind of a lightning-in-a-bottle movie where it's just... It worked. It was funny. It was scary. It felt perfect for the time. You know, everything worked. And if I recall correctly, I think I gave it, if not a 10, then at least a 9. But this movie, you know... I saw it when I was young. You know, I grew up watching it along with the first one. It It's definitely not perfect. And it, there's a lot of issues with it. You know, the whole rebuilding thing we talked about, the whole changing things visually or character-wise to be more like the cartoon, the characters making interesting choices. However, that being said, I don't hate this movie as much as a lot of people do. I don't look down upon it like, oh, it's a horrible sequel, blah, blah, blah. Does it retread some of the same steps? Yes. Do sequels do that? Absolutely. There are very many parallels between this movie and the first one. Even Matt said a montage is almost to the T around the same time as the first one. I can't say this movie gets like a failing grade because in my heart of hearts, I do enjoy watching it. I do like revisiting it. Do I revisit it as much as the first one? Absolutely not. But I, I do like this movie. So I think... When we recorded these last year, I think I gave it a bit of a higher score. But now talking over with you guys, I think I'm going to 
probably land around a seven with this. Yeah, seven. it's not. It, I, I think I gave it an eight, and then we lost the recording. I think after talking over it with you guys, there's a little bit more that I can kind of pick apart from this. But I think because of my, you know, I do enjoy it. I can't really go lower than a, 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 a you know, a, a good seven. I think that's where I want to stay. Strong seven from uh, Mr. James. That's kind of surprising, actually. All right, Goudreau, what do you have to say? What do you what do you give this movie? Well, based on our conversation last year, my score has not changed in the interim since I tried to record these shows. Um, I think our production history is about as troubled as, as everything I've seen. <laughs> so. This is, to me, the personification of what I call like studio assembly filmmaking, where they see something, they, I mean Columbia or whoever the heck was behind this thing with Columbia at the time, you know, they see something work and they're like, all right, replicate it. They put the secret formula, or at least they think they did, and it kind of blew up in their face. It's got problems, as I've expressed, but I don't think this is god-awful. Maybe even just browbeaten, Garrett. We've seen so many bad movies. Like, you and I have watched, we've watched a lot of bad fucking movies. I love bad movies. Mm-hmm. But it, this was not painful, but it's also very uninspired. And it's kind of, I'd call it substandard. So I, I can't quite go a five. So I'm going to go one, one knock lower. I'm going to give it a four. Give it a, give it a consummate wow. GC on 10. I, I feel like slime kind of got in the way. And instead of providing negative energy, it sucked all the creativity out of Dan Aykroyd and company. Boy, oh boy. We got a B and an F here for going letter grades. Literally, I can take things that both of you said and throw it in one bowl and mix it up because I can't disagree with the majority of what both of you guys said, which makes me in a really awkward position here. Look, my main beef with this movie is there's none of that frat boy energy which really fueled that last film. Matt, we've never talked about this one, but Dan Aykroyd did another one, The Blues Brothers, which I just rewatched recently in the last month or so. And my God, the energy in that movie is nonstop for two plus hours. We are in sequel territory. Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, at this point, I don't think they'd done a sequel. They come to this and they write the script and I'll go with what Matt says here. A lot of this just feels studio mandated. And it doesn't seem like people want to be here. That being said, seeing them do some of the things that we've talked about in this movie, I like a lot of the bits that they have here. Problem is the energy's different, and Janos is a character who really, every time he's on screen, I just don't like him. So where do I fall? I want to fall right in the middle with you guys. I want to go six. If you're a fan of that first movie and you enjoy that first movie a lot like the three of us did, chances are you will like this movie at least a little bit. But there's also that chance that you're mad where you're like, you know what, the energy's gone, the rehash is just not working for me. That's okay too, but I think there's enough for any Ghostbusters fan to enjoy to watch this movie. And I agree with Logan with this too. I think the reputation this movie gets is unwarranted. I don't think it is. It is the thing that killed the franchise for a while, but I don't think this is the goose that really destroyed this, this franchise. It made enough money, and I think there's enough creativity here. There are bits with the slime and everything that I do like, but goddamn, write Dana out, get a new sub-villain, and make some things that aren't mandated by a cartoon, and you'll have a better movie. But there's enough energy, I do like it, to a point. All right, that is it for Ghostbusters 2. Boys, if we thought leading up to this one was tough, wait till we get to next week and we talk about Ghostbusters 2016, a movie that the three of us, 
Unlike the first two movies, we all lived through that huge buildup. You know, I want to leave this on a tease. What were you guys feeling about Ghostbusters 2016 right before you went in that theater? So for me, this is actually, out of the three Ghostbusters films that were released in theaters, this is actually one of, well, I guess I didn't see the first one in theaters, and I didn't see this one in theaters. Now, obviously, I'm sure we're going to get to it, but the backlash against this movie was massive. I had none of that going in. I was kind of over the IP at that point. You know, I was just, you know, okay, they're making another one, and it's got pretty much the cast of Bridesmaids in it, some SNL alums, or if not, then the cast members at that time. You know, I really liked Bridesmaids, but I was just like, you know, this is one I'm going to catch when I release on home video. So my excitement for it wasn't kind of the level when I saw Ghostbusters 2, obviously it was many years later, but I I couldn't expect how much it was going to be just torn apart in comment sections of YouTube and, and whatever, IMDB and whatever, like Childhood Ruin. Like, I, I couldn't even begin to fathom. Mm. To quote an 80s property that I love very much, I felt like I was in the ultimate no-win scenario no matter what I said walking out of that movie. If I liked it, I was betraying the original in one camp, and then the other side, I was a flaming misogynist if I didn't like it for the other camp. So I was like, you know what? What the fuck do you guys want from me? When I was walking into that theater, I almost wanted to like have a bag over my head, and I was glad I wasn't reviewing this for any publication because I knew... It was almost like, I was sorry for the young folks at the time, and it was almost like nobody wanted to touch this movie because nobody wanted to put their name next to their review regardless of how they felt about it. It was like a presidential election almost level of disagreement and just name calling. It was really bad during that time. Like, I've never seen anything like it up until, like, I don't know, Star Wars post-Disney taking it over. The backlash before this movie even came out is something we're going to dive deep into next week, but goddamn, Lord knows we all have our opinions on it. All right, that'll lead up to Ghostbusters 2016, and then, my God, we're finally going to be here, guys. Ghostbusters Afterlife, we'll get to our anticipation of that next week, or not anticipation of it, because there was a little scene that was released about a month or so ago as we record this. I'm sure the three of us have opinions on that too, but we'll wait for that till next week. Boys, Always a joy talking to you two. I love talking Ghostbusters with you guys. Lord knows we've done it six times at this point. (laughs) Great time. But until next week, two in the box, ready to go. We be fast. This podcast be slow. Thanks, gentlemen. Coffee, Mr. Tully? Do I? Yes, have some. Yes, have some. The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! Voice narration done by Adam. Hey, what? You boneheads are going to come and rouse me out again? You get a car.
car, and you get a car, and you get a car. <laughs> Edited by Garrett. What an asshole. Shubs and Zools knew what it was to be roasted in the depths of the slur that day, I can tell you. Two in the box! Ready to go! We be fast and they be slow! You have the backup all set to go? I've been ready for the last three months. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then just shit kept getting in the way. So I am I am about as ready as uh, the fans were ready to hate the 2016 movie. So let's... Uh, <laughs> wow. We got one! And I assume none of the actors do the voiceover work. No. No. Arsenio Hall did Ernie Hudson's character. <laughs> Arsenio Hall did uh, <laughs> did um, God damn, I'm forgetting Winston. Uh, uh, Winston. Winston. Yeah, and Arsenio it... Hall did Winston. Go ahead. We got one. All right, are we ready to go here? Do yeah. we have a Do we have enough backstory here to unleash? Because man, do I have a lot to say about this movie, and I'm sure Matt does too. I don't remember the podcast we did last year. But saying, seeing how this was only his second time watching this movie, I'm sure he uh, he's he's waiting to unleash here, just like I was waiting to unleash on Fast and Furious. You know me. So. Hold on a second, okay, guys. Hold on. Okay. Yeah, I was so ready to go that somebody had to stop me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Were you going to say something, Matt, before I uh, before I, I left there? I was about to say, oh, you know me so well. <laughs> so we open up. We got one! This is like what would happen if, like, Disney got a hold of Ghostbusters. Yeah. You know what's amazing about it? You know what's amazing about... Hold on, Logan. Sorry. You know what's amazing about that rant you just gave, Matt? We got well, you can make fun of cartoon sex spots all you want, but anyone who tells me they never had a crush on Jessica Rabbit is full of shit. Oh, um, I was not making so fun. I was just I making an observation, and, and uh, sir, you, I'm I right know, there with you. I know. What are we? You know, what are we doing that retro? Even though it's only one. Yeah. yeah. And I'm okay, Matt. You're disqualified. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Matt, is there a so we see the ghost male cartoon character <laughs> that like really gets you going? Like, come on. Come on, Matt. Do you seriously want me to answer that question because I yes. have one? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Let's uh, go you a blooper, uh, but go ahead. Oh, uh, fuck. Uh, I'll, I'll, it'll come to me. It'll, and that's not you from this. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. So. We got one! Stuff did happen, so I don't know why, like, there's an issue. 
There's my train. Oh, train. <laughs> There's your train. <laughs> um, let's wait for the train to go by. Jesus Christ. How yeah. fast is that fucker going? Um, God, we were, I already have like six bloopers, and we're only 27 minutes into this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, sir, what do you think about the uh, opening birth? We got one! Egon has like kind of like a like a sharp sense of humor, like a biting sense of humor, but like not in a way that's almost like spiteful or mean. So I was like, wow, yeah, that seems call. like very not like his character, but, you know, I guess it's just we're hitting the comedic notes. And I'm going to mute myself now so you guys will hear the train. Okay. All right. We got one! Guys, how do we like this reintrodu- reintroduction to ghost busting? I mean, it makes sense. Because- Logan, you go ahead and ghost first, sir. No. I, was going, I was actually going to. About you. Okay. <laughs> okay, um, sorry. You know, I think it, it's... We got one! Kind of similar to the first movie, they all kind of get arrested, and then we kind of go through that thing. Matt? Yeah, I, I almost have a carbon copy of what, what Logan just said, so I'm not going okay. to rip this one a new one. Gotcha. <laughs> we got You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.